Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. My name is Anna Thwaites, and I'm a counsel in the Clifford Chance Global Financial Markets Group, based in Frankfurt, and chair of Clifford Chance's Arcus Germany Network. Arcus is the affinity network for LGBTIQA colleagues at Clifford Chance and their allies. I'm joined today by our Global Director of Inclusion and Diversity, Tiernan Brady, and our Arcus Australia co-chair, Christy Lee Malik, to talk about the journey to marriage equality in Germany and Australia. Welcome, Tiernan. Hi, Anna. Thanks a million for doing this. Thank you, Tiernan. And welcome, Christy Lee. Hi, Anna. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Christy Lee. With diversity and inclusion now a key pillar within businesses, I'd like to reflect with Tiernan and Christy Lee on what marriage equality meant for the people involved and what we can learn as businesses, organisations and communities about delivering sustainable, inclusive change. So Tiernan, to start, what do we actually mean by marriage equality and why is it so important? And I think, well, marriage equality is important because it's about saying that people, no matter who we fall in love with, are entitled to have the same status and standing for their relationships. And if that status and standing doesn't exist, first of all, people are missing out on legal opportunities and legal rights and legal responsibilities that are available to everybody. But also it means that society is sending a very clear message to people that your relationship is not worth the same to society as someone else's relationship. So marriage equality became you know, critically important for LGBT plus people because it was the symbol as well as the real legal impact that your relationship sits on the same status and standing as your brothers and sisters and everybody else in your family and everyone in your community. Tuna, mm. yeah, I can see how that is critical for societies and for the people within it. And turning to Christy Lee, can we understand what the legal position was for same-sex and trans couples in Australia prior to 2017? And I'll come to the importance of 2017 in a moment. Certainly, Anna. Under the Australian Constitution, a federal uh, parliament has the power to make laws about marriage. And prior to 1961, each state and territory had different regulations concerning marriage. In 1961, the federal parliament passed the Marriage Act, which made marriage law consistent across the country, which essentially was conceptualised as a heterosexual union where each person pledged that they'll be faithful to one person only. But it's worth noting that that did not prohibit same-sex marriage as a definition of marriage. And with the Netherlands becoming the first country to enforce marriage equality laws to same-sex couples in 2001, many same-sex Australian couples were jetting overseas to be married in jurisdictions that allowed same-sex marriage and would then return to our shores seeking recognition of their union. But in 2004, the Marriage Act was quickly amended to enforce a definition of marriage, which specifically prohibited same-sex marriage, with the definition of marriage being the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. In the mid-2000s, some not all Australian uh, states and territories were able to create laws to respect relationships, such as having civil partnerships and domestic partnerships, which varied from state to state. Uh, which provided definitive proof that relationships were legitimate and obtained similar rights as were provided to uh, heterosexual de facto couples under state and federal law. On a personal level, I'm sure many queer people would have found themselves in an argument with someone who opposed same-sex marriage, and I myself have been asked this before, but why do you need a piece of paper to say you're married? And I would fire right back at them and say, well, why do you? 
We all know uh, that it's much more than a piece of paper. It's something that is undeniable and requires no additional proof of relationship. Mm. So a separate category of relationship. And were there attempts to pass marriage equality laws in Australia prior to 2017? I understand that the Australian Capital Territory, or ACT for short, may have tried. It was in 2013 that the ACT passed marriage equality legislation, which unfortunately didn't stick around. It saw the Commonwealth challenging the rule in the High Court, and within two months, the High Court had dismissed the legislation, stating that it was not consistent with the Federal Marriage Act, saying that the word marriage in the Australian Constitution, which was not uh, previously defined, uh, includes same-sex marriage, as there was no mention of the exclusion, which in turn meant the Federal Parliament could legislate for same-sex marriage in the coming years without needing to amend the Constitution. In relation to laws surrounding transgender people, prior to 2017, traditionally all states in Australia required a person to be single before amending their gender on their birth certificate, which was to prevent same-sex marriage occurring once someone had transitioned to the same sex as their spouse. It meant that those who were married to a person who identified as transgender prior to registering an official change of gender on their birth certificate would actually need to divorce from their spouse as a condition of registration on their birth certificate. Anna, would you mind please elaborating on the legal position in Germany for same-sex and trans couples prior to 2017? Sure. I think there are some similarities and some differences between the Australian and the German situation. Prior to 2017, like Australia, Germany had no marriage equality. But unlike in Australia, so-called eingetragene Lebenspartnerschaften, or registered domestic partnerships or civil unions, had been the law in Germany since 2001 in all states of Germany. And all states ultimately allowed civil ceremonies at their registry offices, and relationships were recognised across each state. So same-sex couples who were in registered domestic partnerships could move freely around Germany and have their relationship recognised. The Federal Constitutional Court in Germany also confirmed the constitutionality of registered domestic partnerships, particularly that they do not contravene the special protection enjoyed by marriage and the concept of marriage under the German Basic Law, which is similar to a Bill of Rights. Since 2002, though, unlike in Australia, there had been a series of Federal Constitutional Court cases where the court held to be unconstitutional a number of laws that treated registered domestic partners differently from married couples. And so with these decisions, the rights of same-sex couples and registered domestic partnerships aligned ever closer with those of married couples in areas such as tax, think about stamp tax on property transfers or income splitting among couples, and successive adoption. Since 2013, though, the issues seem to have been moved to the back burner and there was some little movement on the marriage equality front, although certain opposition parties, including the Greens, began introducing marriage equality bills into the German parliament from 2013, but they hadn't progressed very far. And so Tiernan, can you tell me what was happening in Australia in the years leading up to 2017? Was there the same degree of activism before the courts that we saw in Germany? And what was happening in the area of public opinion? We've mentioned 2017 as being very significant. What led up to those events in 2017? Thanks, Hannah. I mean, I suppose this is the story of politics and law and how they can both meet. I mean, the campaign for marriage equality in Australia had been going for several years um, and had been 
you know, picking up support uh, consistently over that time. Um, I think probably one of the big trigger moments was when Ireland pa successfully passed marriage equality by a public vote, it became the first country in the world to do it that way. And there was a huge reaction in Australia at the time with a lot of people taking to the streets in pride marches uh, uh, to, to say, you know, it's time in Australia. Now, part of that was probably people in Australia were surprised that the land of Father Ted, uh, where I'm from, became the first country in the world to do this by public vote and felt it was time that Australia, you know, was at that stage as well. At the time, the political establishment, the government was quite conservative and was led by a very conservative person called Tony Abbott. Um, and Tony Abbott, uh, as a way of delaying any action in relation to advancing marriage equality, announced in reaction to the pride protests calling for marriage that he wanted a referendum the same as Ireland. So ironically, Ireland's referendum became a, a catalyst, but also became the moment where the conservative opposition to marriage equality got to crystallise around the idea of a public vote. And the difference between Ireland and Australia and the public vote is a really important one, because in Ireland, a public vote was legally required because it was a constitutional amendment around marriage recognition. In Australia, it absolutely was not legally required. The discussion around having a public vote was devised by people who wanted to prevent marriage equality. Mm. And the public vote, as you describe it, was actually conducted by the government as a non-binding voluntary postal survey in 2017, not a referendum or a plebiscite, because neither a referendum nor a plebiscite was needed to change the law. And the campaigning around this survey became known as the marriage equality vote of 2017. So Tiernan, how did you become involved in the marriage equality campaign in Australia in 2017? Christy, I can't believe you thought I wasn't Australian from my accent. How did that happen? As probably people can hear, I am originally, I am from Ireland. I had been the political director of the Irish referendum campaign. And after the success of the Irish referendum campaign in the summer of 2015, um, we got approached by several people in the Australian campaign and connected to the Australian campaign because it was become apparent that that there may well end up being a public vote on this in whatever form that would take. Uh, and that was a piece of campaigning that is something that Australia didn't do that often. So they wanted to come over and learn what the way we had approached this in, in, in Ireland. Um, and as it turns out, they asked me, would I come over to do some speeches and meet some of the groups in January of 2016? Now, it's very easy to say yes when someone says, would you like to go to Australia from Northern Europe in January 2016? So January is a good time to get out of Northern Europe. So I, I said yes. But when I got there, we had a lot of discussions and, and they asked me, would I become the director of the campaign? So I, I was both... Thanks, Tina. And I'm sure we're going to ask you shortly a little bit more about what your experience was of that campaign. But I just wanted to turn to, to Christy Lee, because Christy Lee, you obviously experienced that campaign yourself in your personal capacity. If you're comfortable to speak about it, can you share some of your experiences of what the campaign was like in Australia in 2017? Of course. Well, what can I say? It was an emotional roller coaster. Um, having come from a religious background and from a large family and also living in an area of my state uh, where the no vote was very overpowering, uh, I've never been so nervous in my life. 
uh, prior to the announcement, I'd been with my now wife for a few years and we'd been engaged and I'd always hoped that one day I might be able to get married. I can't really tell you how many times I burst into tears during the lead up to the announcement in fear that if it was in fact a no vote, I'd have to face the constant ridicule and backlash that Australia didn't improve of my relationship and when I might have another chance to have this approved in the future. I know it's quite sad, but it's very true. Just being out literally and about in public made me feel unsafe during the campaign. I'd received quite dirty looks in public for holding my partner's hand or see people whispering, knowing full well it was about the vote and that these people had some kind of control over my future happiness should those people have been voting against marriage equality. Uh, I felt as if I was living in a constant feeling of insecurity and judgment, but I did take the initiative to make sure that every vote counted no matter the outcome. I'd walk around people in the office uh, and ask if I could post their votes, not asking how they voted, but, you know, to make sure that if there was a yes vote among them, uh, that it would be counted because, of course, it was a voluntary vote. Uh, and besides taking uh, steps forward in being a visible champion for change at work, I remember sitting at my desk at work on the 15th of November 2017 when the results of the postal survey were announced, surrounded by my amazing Clifford Chance friends who shared my tears after hearing the outcome. It was a feeling of joy and also relief that there was support for same-sex couples and it was now back into the hands of the government to make amendments to the bill. Thanks, Christy Lee. And it sounds like an enormous emotional roller coaster for you and some really intense and frankly almost traumatic experiences. Tiernan, knowing that this was potentially and was in fact the impact on a number of people in the community as a result of the campaign or during the campaign, how did you experience the campaign and, and how did you address these very real experiences and feelings had by, by members of the community who were affected during the campaign? I think, Anna, it's so important for all of us who campaign for equality or inclusion to remember that public votes or pieces of legislation or court cases are moments in a journey that started before we started campaigning and will continue long after we finish campaigning whether that's LGBT equality, gender equality, you know, issues around ethnicity. So I think as campaigners, it was really important for us to understand that and be the responsibility that comes with that, knowing that the campaign continues the day after a public vote. It continues the day after a case. People will walk down to breakfast the following morning. People will go to work the following morning. So the tone that you set when you campaign for equality is the tone that the most vulnerable person you are campaigning for will have to live with long after you finish campaigning. The stress that people feel in the run up to a public vote is not unique. It's just concentrated in time. So that stress is the same as the stress that's felt for a piece of legislation or a court case. It's just those journeys are spread out over years. What a referendum does, and this is you know, the truth, uh, unfortunate truth and reality, is that it concentrates that, it concertinas that into this intense public national discussion that lasts four to six weeks in a real burst. And for people who are experiencing that, that's really hard. So from day one, we knew that. So from day one, we knew you can't run a campaign that's just a firework campaign where you're going to firebomb the other side, where you're going to explain that everybody on the other side is a terrible person, because, of course, that's not true. Most people who vote yes 
to equality for LGBT people would have voted no if we'd asked them the same question 20 years ago. So all your campaigning has to be based a, on the journey you're allowing people to make towards becoming a supporter. And again, and I can't emphasize this enough, the responsibility of, of those of us who are campaigners, that taking care of people during the experience of the journey and the experience of the campaign, that we have a responsibility. You are respectful. If you're trying to persuade people that inclusion is about respect and dignity, then having a little bit of respect and dignity as a campaign is an incredibly important piece of that as you're trying to convey what the future is going to feel like and also as a way of taking care of people. Um, so conscious of it all the time, Anna, and more importantly, conscious of that it wasn't someone else's responsibility. And listening to what you've shared with us and what Tiernan has so reflectively and thoughtfully explained, it's almost difficult for me to realise just how different the German experience was and the very different route that Germany ultimately took. And I think that's for several reasons. First of all, the decisions of the German Federal Constitutional Court that I mentioned earlier had been largely accepted within Germany. And where the court had found that particular aspects of laws to be unconstitutional and discriminatory against same-sex couples, those laws were changed. And I think there was a survey by the Federal Anti-Discrimination Office at the beginning of 2017, which showed that over 80% of the German electorate ultimately favoured marriage equality. And those numbers had been consistent around two-thirds of the electorate in the years leading up to that. But nothing had really moved the dial. And there was no real political will for, for change until the 2017 German federal elections. And the big difference, I think, in Germany is that the political parties took it on themselves to treat this as an issue as something that politically elected representatives could decide on, effectively do their jobs on this issue. And sensing that public opinion had turned by 2017, the Green Party made same-sex marriage not only part of their policy platform, but also a condition to forming any coalition government that included them. And all of the other major political parties followed the Greens within a space of a week. Think the Social Democrats, the Liberals, the Left, except for the largest political party, the socially conservative CDU, CSU, which was led by Chancellor Merkel. And then, in an extraordinary move, Chancellor Merkel, who has herself expressed doubts about same-sex marriage, gave all CDU-CSU members of parliament a conscience vote on the issue. And that was on a Monday. Coincidentally, a draft marriage equality bill just happened to be sitting on the books of the German parliament at the time. Remember, a number of bills had been introduced into the parliament during that legislative period. And it was all over by Friday. So instead of weeks of public voting or campaigning, there were some parliamentary debates over the course of three days. There was a lot of media attention. And on Friday morning, the German Bundestag voted. Chancellor Merkel voted against the bill, but some of her party colleagues voted in favour. And with the support of the other major parties, the Social Democrats, the Greens, the Liberals and the left, the law was passed. And Chancellor Merkel, who had personally opposed the law, somehow still took credit for this momentous change. And reflecting on that, and how that developed in Germany. Christy Lee, I think 
you can probably remember where you were on the day that the law changed in, in Australia. Can you share with us some of your experiences then? Of course, how could I forget? Another um, very emotional day. Um, I've been engaged prior to the bill passing, so it was a day of celebration and also one where I could finally stop saying always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Um, I had um, all of my friends and family messaging me asking when the wedding would be, expressing their happiness, calling me to ask how it was. Um, but yeah, I, funnily enough, I, um, I won a wedding off the radio in the days after the yes vote was announced, but before the legislation was amended from the a national radio station, which mentioned they didn't care if it was legal or not. And they showed their support to the LGBT plus community and made 12 uh, happy couples, including my dreams come true. Just so awesome, Christy Lee. I mean, Anna, same to you, though. What was your experience the day this finally happened? Thanks, Tienan. Actually, I was at a Clifford Chance Academy offsite training at the time, and I can still remember on the morning of the vote in the federal parliament, all of the German colleagues who were at this training had their mobile phones in front of them, live streaming the vote in the German parliament. And when the bill was passed, I got a call on my phone and I stepped outside to take it. And it was my now wife. I should probably mention at this point that she's a teacher. And so she asked me how I was and I said, fine. And then I said, you've got me on loudspeaker, haven't you? And I was a bit surprised because it was in the middle of a school day. And she said, yes, I do. I've got something to ask you. And she said, will you marry me? And I said, yes, of course. And in the background, I could hear the entire classroom erupt and there were about 30 kids all screaming and shouting with happiness in the background. And I knew at that time that marriage equality had really arrived. And Tienan, hearing the stories from Christy Lee and from me, I suppose, on the other side of the world, I'm interested to know what actually happened when the law changed in, in Australia? Well, I suppose the most important thing that happened was that a few people were allowed to get married um, nobody else became less married and nobody else became more gay. Uh, and I think that probably is the most important thing that happened. I think one of the really fascinating things about inclusion is that sometimes it's so hard to get it over the line. And then when you get it over the line, it's so successful that people kind of go, what was all the fuss about? Because what they realize is, by and large, when you extend a right to another group of people, it doesn't take anything away from you. You just get on with your life and now other people in your family are allowed to get on with their life you know, and be themselves as well. I think, sorry, of all the stories here today, that inclusion can come in multiple ways. There's no one pathway for us. So what was a referendum in Ireland was a postal survey that was non-binding in Australia, which became legislation. What was legislation in Germany was actually a raffle in New Zealand where it came out of a hat in Parliament. And as a result, New Zealand managed to get legislation. So I think great campaigning has been about being aware and awake of the opportunities that are in front of you and knowing that the path that might deliver inclusion may not be the one you think that's sitting in front of you all the time. It could surprise you. I think, though, the great thing about Australia is we see now that marriages happen every day in Australia, no matter who you are. And as we were always confident would happen, there is no gigantic movement to reverse that law because people can see this was the right and proper thing to do and that it has taken nothing 
from anybody. Thanks, Tim. I think there's some valuable reflections in there for all of us. And I think one thing that surprised me a little was how quickly in Germany marriage equality became a non-issue as soon as the legislation was passed. And the focus turned from some commentators and some parliamentarians fretting about what would happen to the family if marriage equality legislation were passed to civil registry offers fretting about not having their computer systems upgraded fast enough to deal with the influx of same-sex couples who decided that they actually wanted to get married and were upset that their applications couldn't get processed fast enough. So it does, in a way, show that when change comes, sometimes after the event, there is a lot of healing to do. But at the same time, there's a large portion of the community who are prepared to just accept that the change is there and get on with their lives. And thinking about that, I'm really curious to hear from you, Tiernan, and, and Christy Lee about what the lessons are that we can learn from both the German and the Australian experiences beyond, I suppose, the broad brush societal type of lessons to, to what can we learn in our businesses and organisations today? I think probably one of the, some of the great learning is, is I think, is if we look at these successful campaigns and understanding that, you know, there is no finish line to them, that there are moments that are punctuated, such as marriage legislation or a marriage public vote or, or a piece of civil partnership legislation. But inclusion, you know, is a constant journey. And I think from uh, from a business perspective for our own workplaces, it's about understanding that that this journey doesn't end, that great campaigns are constantly engaging, constantly persuading, you know, because you've got to be confident that, the you know, that everybody potentially is open to to this idea that inclusion is a good idea and that and that when you bring them on board, as you rightly say, Anna, when you bring them on board, hopefully they realize, well, this is great. So I think one of the most important pieces from, I think, those journeys is understanding that because there's no finish line, the journey is the goal. The journey is as important to making inclusion a reality. So our workplaces have to be spaces where we're constantly engaging, constantly being respectful of the journey where people you know, are allowing them to start that journey. You know, but also, but I think also understanding that you can't ever stop campaigning. You can't take these values for granted that, you know, that they're not just going to simply become embedded instantly, you know. So, A, I think that permanent campaign, that respectful journey, that tone that is engaging, making the journey feel like the goal. But I think what's also clear, to be honest, and, and this is perhaps a little bit more hard-nosed businessy about it, inclusion is just incredibly important for engaging your own people. You know, people that are excluded or people that feel marginalised, you know, they're not fully engaged and fully committed. And why would they be? You know, you, you've chosen to push them out a bit. So, you know, we, as a firm, we as all firms, you know, we have to recognize that it's when you are truly inclusive, that people are truly collaborative, you know, truly collegial and truly innovative. And all of those things 
lead to probably one of the most important things that a firm wants to be, which is truly successful. He's basically hit the nail on the head, but saying that our work is is never done. We need to do everything that we can to make sure that no matter how you identify, it doesn't matter. It's we are all inclusive and we just have to keep on that path. Um, Similarly to other um, businesses here at Clifford Chance, we have a network known as Arcus, which is Clifford Chance's LGBT plus network, um, and making sure that we are visible around the office, you know, making sure that if anyone enters our firm, being client, um, supplier, potential hire, anyone that walks in knows that this is a safe space. And it's just making sure that, you know, we are visible. And so, you know, if these things don't exist in businesses, people will not be their true authentic selves. And we just have to really make sure that we stay the course and we, we you know, continue to do our best to show that we're an inclusive diverse organisation. Thanks, Tiana. And thanks, Christy Lee. Again, valuable insight from you both. And I think it's podcasts like this that also help raise visibility of these really fundamental issues around inclusion and diversity for businesses. And it does show, I think, that issues like equal rights for the LGBT plus community isn't over with marriage equality. I just think about same-sex couples in Germany, and despite marriage equality, they're still treated differently when it comes to things like children in the relationship. But that's probably a topic for another podcast. So the takeaway I have from this is that, and from our discussion, is that the campaign never really stops and there isn't really a finish line. We need to keep actively demonstrating our values of inclusiveness and our support for diversity in our businesses to be able to bring the most of out of, out of our employees and our staff in our business and to keep up the values that we as a business hold ourselves to. But I can see that we've come a long way and I think that we can definitely celebrate. Thank you, Tiana and Christy Lee. It's been an absolute pleasure to be in your company today. And thank you to our listeners for your ongoing support. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn. The content of this podcast does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Specific legal advice about your specific circumstances should always be sought separately before taking any action.